clackety, clackety, clackety. Ah, oh, you're home with your clackety. I am reunited and it feels so good. You sang. <laughs> I'm a singer. I'm a singer. <laughs> Why would you double down? Have fun, Tom. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Steph Vickery. And I'm Chris Toomey. And together we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. Hey Chris, how's work going? Work's going well. Uh, I was ready to answer that question more in the general sense and then you asked the work question and you narrowed it down. But I'm going to go broad again. The weather is nice. Spring has arrived. It's probably early fake spring because that's how that happens. But up here in the Boston area, the weather is absolutely delightful and it is true breath of fresh air and I'm really trying to enjoy it as much as possible. How do you define delightful weather in Boston? What's your favorite temperature? Roughly 70 and not too humid and things like that. Also sunny, mostly not wintry, so not too hot. But right now it's like almost, I think it's actually hit 70 one or two days, which has been nice. I, I'm intrigued. Is your definition of nice very different than mine? No, that's pretty close. 70 is good. I, I'm probably more of a fan of 80, but I like hot weather. I'm yeah. into it. You are a creature of the South, so. Mm-hmm. But yeah, 70, especially when you've just made it through winter and then you hit 70, it feels, it starts to feel like summer. So I understand how that is amazing. There was a ton of snow around and now uh, almost all of it has been melted away. And so like it just this week was a very sudden change and that that has been nice. But looping back to your original question of how's work, uh, overall things are good. I did have something come up this week that is interesting. We we try on the show, obviously, to be very positive. But for a moment, if you'll allow me, uh, I want to share an airing of grievances, if you will. I had an interaction with a, a system this week that really... I did not enjoy. Uh, so it's a service, and I'm not going to name names because that's that's not the way I want to play this, but it's a service that allows you to host some content in a form. And one of the features that they have on a paid plan is you can have a custom domain. So you can set this up to be like foo.example.com where your core domain is example.com. And so now you're hosting on this subdomain. And that feature, I've seen that on a lot of different platforms. Uh, it's nice. It's nice to be able to like white label the domain and have this hosted service still be served through your canonical domain name setup. But the critical distinction is they do have SSL, but only on enterprise call us to find out how much plans. And the separation of those features makes me very, very unhappy. I would actually be fine if they said custom domains with SSL are part of our enterprise platform, whatever, however they want to do their pricing. Broadly speaking, if a company wants to make money, that's probably a thing that they have to do at some point. So they can structure it how they want. But that structuring leads to bad outcomes. That leads to non-HTTPS internet sites. And we shouldn't have those anymore, especially because behind the scenes, they're just using Let's Encrypt like everyone else in the world at this point. Heroku has this. It's automated. Netlify has this. It's automated. It's a free feature of their platforms. I think you might have to be on like some level of paid, but it's the minimalist level of paid on either of those platforms. And yeah, I was very, very unhappy to see that. The idea that a company is offering SSL sort of that next level behind a pay tier versus making it more of like a minimum requirement really vibes with every conversation that we've had in the past about SSL and how important it is and how you feel about it. So yeah, I can totally see why that would grind your gears. 
It's funny because I, I tend to be a very positive person, but I was interacting with someone else on the engineering team there and I was pointing out that this hosted page was not under SSL. And I think I was a bit grumpier than I normally am. And they were like, are you, are you okay? I was like, yeah, that's just really, I don't like this. And they're like, okay, wow. Okay. We found the thing that uh, will make you angry. So turns out <laughs> if you're out there building a service and you're thinking about splitting your pricing tiers in that way, please don't. I beg of you. Did you end up getting in touch with them? Like, is it a high increase in price to go to include SSL or is it pretty reasonable? They just they're using this as a way to force you to call them and talk to them about plans. They definitely structure it or at least like frame it in their documentation as, you know, call to find out, et cetera, et cetera. And I think even if it's just that it's a thing that developers are so averse to like, I'm sorry, you want me to get on the phone and talk to a person? my goodness, I don't know about that. And someone else actually did the investigation. And I think they reached out to their support team and said, like, hey, we're interested in getting this. And they replied back like, oh, okay, that's our enterprise integrations team. You'll have to get in touch with them, give them a call. Which I also found that funny that there was this moment of, hey, we would like fancier feature. And their response was, well, you should call our enterprise sales team. It's like, I shouldn't the enterprise sales team just do the call at that point. Don't you see that as the lead and you jump in there? So in a lot of ways, I was like, what are you all doing over there? But also, yeah, please don't structure your pricing that way. And give everybody (laughs) SSL. At this point, everything should be SSL. Let's Encrypt did the hard work, got us to this wonderful utopian place where it's possible. And now it, it just should be the thing. Oh, man, but now I really want you to call them. So then you can have this conversation with them. And then you can advocate for yes, SSL for everybody, and then have that built in. I I would totally want to be a fly on the wall for that call. If I felt like there was any good possible outcome there, that would be fine. But it's one of those situations where I would go and I would be some amount of grumpy. I would try and minimize the grump, but you know, it's going to come through. But even grumpy Chris is very nice, Chris. I try. But at the end of the day, whoever's in that enterprise sales role is definitely not going to be empowered to fundamentally change the pricing tiers. They might be able to like run it up the flagpole, but that's my guess. I don't know that for certain. But again, I just I I got kind of angry about it, (laughs) which is, you know, rare for me. Yeah, that is rare. And that does stink. And it's probably my overly optimistic side that yes, you're probably right. They can't do a darn thing about it. But I'm also someone that still would make it heard just to I don't know, see where it goes. Are you the sort of person that will use the phone to call another human? Has to be important. SSL is important. I'm also I just get curious. So maybe it's more that too. I'm like, why? Why did y'all do this, friends? Is there a reason that I'm missing? Is there is there something like some complexity? Is it just to get people to call you? Like it's, it's more that curiosity that's driving me behind those type of product decisions where I want to know why it was made that way? And could it be changed? All right, so my gears have been officially ground. <laughs> Wait, so do you do y'all have SSL? What'd you do? If you're not willing to make a call? What happened? No, we so I think (laughs) there was the initial round of (laughs) customer support outreach. And the response was, you'll need to talk to our enterprise sales team for that. And that was basically a like, that's going to be a no for us, because it also it wasn't worth significant effort. It's one Mm. of those things like I believe that SSL deeply matters. But on a static hosted content sort of page, like it's not it's not the worst thing in the world. But yeah, so we have not pursued it further. And we do not have SSL on this particular page, which makes me sad. Got it. Okay. Well, I didn't have any run-ins with SSL this week, but I did have a run-in with some time zone troubles and testing. So I'm excited to dive into that because it's a pretty interesting scenario that I ran into. So I hope you're ready. Do you have like a drink? Because this this (laughs) could get interesting. (laughs) 
I mean, I have water, but I don't think that's what you mean. But in my experience, time zones and testing are always super easy, and I've never seen any problems. So by all means, let's uh, let's dive in. Oh, yeah, totally. It's just this one time. This one time it was hard. All the other times, time is easy. Just time, this one time, 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 time in leap year. That's the only time these tests fail. <laughs> <laughs> so the issue that I ran into as I was picking up a ticket that was specifically around investigating a daylight savings time bug. And the bug is when the time of an event is changed, specifically around daylight savings. So as of 2021, that is March 14th. So if there's an event that is scheduled on March 12th, and then there are reservations associated with that event, if you change the event time to a date time that is after the daylight savings time change, then all the reservations that are associated with that event are getting updated to reflect that new date. But the reservation time is now off by one hour. So the fact that they're off by an hour was a pretty easy sign that something is happening around where we're changing from EST over to EDT. So diving into the code, I went in with the expectations that there's probably a time zone or time period that's not being applied. So I was pairing on this with Joelle Kinville, another thought botter, because I believe strongly that anytime you're messing with time or time zones that you should have a pair. <laughs> so Joelle was kind enough to go on this adventure with me. And I was looking around in TZ info and it implies that if you're referring to like EST versus EDT, that those are time periods that are then within ET. So it helped with the vernacular that we could be more specific to talk about a time time period within a time zone. And where you said ET there, that's the Eastern time zone as opposed to the extraterrestrial. <laughs> exactly. <Okay>. Yes. <laughs> then I think I'm with you. Yeah. Because every time I am scheduling stuff and I'm proposing times to people, I always just use ET as like the generic because I don't want to have to mm -hmm. think about it as to which time period or exact time zone that we're in. So I just use ET. But then as I was talking about it while pairing with Joelle, we needed something a bit more specific. So we were expecting that one of those time zones wasn't getting applied, and that's why we were seeing a reservation time that's an hour off from the user's selected time. However, it came to our attention that the reservation date time wasn't being properly translated to UTC. So for example, if someone in Boston during Eastern Standard Time selects 9 a.m., instead of translating the user's local time to UTC, which would then be 2 p.m. UTC, the reservation time is stored as 9 a.m. UTC. So the database column is storing the reservation date with the correct hour and minute, but the time zone is inaccurate. And that detail is important because one, it's a bit odd, and it definitely surprised me in an unpleasant way. But two, it means that any attempt to convert the reservation date time to a local date time is going to be incorrect since we are trying to translate a incorrect UTC time back over to a local time zone. And now a quick break to hear from today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is application performance monitoring designed to help developers quickly find and fix performance issues without having to deal with the headache or overhead of enterprise feature bloat. With a developer-centric UI and tracing logic that ties bottlenecks to source code, Scout helps you quickly pinpoint and resolve performance abnormalities, like N plus one queries, slow database queries, and memory bloat, so you can spend less time debugging and more time building a great product. At only $39 a month, Scout's real-time alerting and weekly digest emails let you rest easy knowing Scout's on watch and resolving performance issues before your customers ever see them. Give Scout a try today with a free 14-day trial by visiting and experience firsthand why developers worldwide call Scout their best friend. And as an added bonus for Bike Shed listeners, Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. Learn more at scoutapm.com slash bikeshed. That's scoutapm.com slash B-I-K-E-S-H-E-D. Thanks again to Scout for sponsoring today's episode of The Bike Shed. I'm going to pause there because a lot of that was a bit strange and you may have questions. 
Well, I guess one question I have is I could see different interpretations as to what is the correct behavior for a user. Like if we have a reservation for 9 a.m. on Sunday and it gets moved to Monday, so it crosses the daylight savings time change, should it be 9 a.m. on Monday or should it be whatever the shift at like the 24 hours after? So that's what we want. If it's 9 a.m. on Sunday, we want it to be 9 a.m. on Monday, but that was not happening because there was a shift. Yeah, good question. Okay, I think I'm caught up with that then. So I'm interested to hear now, uh, hopefully the resolution, although I wonder if this is just a story of we've found some stuff and we're still searching for truth. Uh, This is definitely a story of we found some stuff Mm. and working through it. So you are correct with that assessment. Uh, So as we were digging into the code, what helped us find this, because I was having one of those moments of where I'm looking at this time that is preserved as UTC. When I'm reading back the value, Rails is then converting it to the application configured time zone, which for the server that I was on is EST. So I'm looking at this date time that's stored in the column, but then as I'm reading it back, then I'm seeing it converted, but it's being converted incorrectly. And it was just confusing me. I'm like, I can't decide if the time is getting saved incorrectly or it's being converted incorrectly. And I think it's a bit of both because as we are accepting that time, it is essentially a representation of the hour and minute that the person selected for their reservation, but it's not actually stored in UTC. Although if you look at it, it does have the UTC time zone associated with the date time. So then when Rails, as we're reading back that value through the adder reader, Rails is then attempting to convert what it thinks is a UTC time over to EST. But since it was never properly converted to UTC in the first point, then our EST time also is wrong. I think I follow. It's it's a bit hard to talk about without examples. So I totally understand. And I've spent a couple of days on this. So I am bringing you up to speed in a couple of days worth of knowledge, in which I've been sifting through the code. And it's essentially because of a bespoke adder writer that this is happening. So the adder writer that is setting that reservation date time is the one that is setting it as UTC, even though we didn't take the user selected time and then match the simultaneous time in UTC. So because of how that adder writer is behaving, that then when we're reading it back, we're actually getting an invalid time. So a long story short, because the time is being treated as something that can't be converted, the solution in this case was to recognize that we can't use the adder reader because we have this value that's inconvertible to like a local time zone because we don't know the proper UTC time. So we can't rely on the adder reader to give it back to us in a proper local time. Instead, we need to always treat this as just a source of truth and always treat it as UTC. So if we always treat it as UTC, then we can see the actual hour and minute for the reservation and then just use that and relay that to the user as like, you selected nine o'clock. We're not going to show you what time zone because we don't know, but we know you selected nine (laughs) o'clock. Is this a case of two wrongs make a right? Is that the solution here? This is a case of a very small code change coupled with a code comment and a hefty commit message for future readers. As for wrong versus right, the way reservation times are being stored seems very intentional and it works, but it's surprising and easy to get wrong. So I think the answer to how to make this right is how do we make this obvious? To make the implementation obvious for others, there are two ideas that come to mind. One idea is to update the code so we're properly translating the user selected time to UTC. So if someone in Boston during EST selects 9 a.m., the reservation is stored as 2 p.m. UTC instead of storing it as 9 a.m. UTC. There's also all of the existing data to consider and converting existing reservation times to their corresponding time in UTC. 
The other idea is to keep the current implementation, but add guardrails to steer people in the right direction. While the application uses a bespoke adder rider to set the UTC time zone, it doesn't override the Rails default adder reader, so we're storing the reservation time in a custom way, but then reading it back using the Rails default, which in this case is to translate the date time to Eastern time. So currently as temporary guardrails, I've added a code comment and used the PR to raise awareness for how reservation times are being stored, but given this adventure was focused on a very specific fix, I haven't taken any other steps. Yeah, it's one of those, how do you put like landmines around the code so that other develop like comments are an obvious choice, but comments go out of date or people don't read them or I want it to break in development the first time someone tries to use it again and just like instead of working, just dump a warning in the test or the console or wherever it is that they're using it. Sort of like a circuit breaker type thing. Uh, so like it starts in the open position, yeah, open and warns you and then it closes and now you can use that code. That's not realistic at all, but that's kind of the thing I want is like, just, you know, leave a post-it that's on the door of the refrigerator so that they can't open the refrigerator without seeing the post-it, that kind of thing. And then they take the post-it away, that, that sort of thing. I don't know how to do that in code though. So everything you did sounds like what I would do. I think it's interesting because of, I'm guessing the nature of this where you have these reservations and they exist in time and they're relevant now, but like the historical data, good to have, good to know about, but maybe not as important. So the idea of going back and fixing everything, especially if it's going to be a lot of work, I could see talking ourselves out of that. And if you're able to make it forward-looking correct, then hopefully you've solved this for the future daylight savings time transitions. I guess the other thing I would ask is, is this sort of like one-time use code? Like this is a bunch of code that we're writing to solve a problem that we have right now. This isn't a system that we expect to live on forever. And so we know that we have this bug around daylight savings time now. But if that were the case, if this is some code that's existing right now but won't live on, could we just solve this manually? Could we write a query that finds relevant records that have you know made that transition, which maybe that's hard enough on its own? But if we could do that, then could we just dump those out on the console, decide which ones we need to fix and like manually fix them? That would be the one thing that I might poke at because if that saves some amount of development time and still gives us confidence that we've solved it, then maybe that's a good solution. But if this is going to live on in any meaningful way, then a more robust solution makes sense. Yeah, a lot of that makes sense. There is one concern in terms of being able to fix it manually through the console because essentially this process is pretty infrequent, which is great. So at least working on this bug, it was important, but that was more because we weren't exactly sure the impact of it. But once we mm. realized the impact, it's pretty small because event dates aren't getting updated that often. But when an event date does get updated and those reservations are updated to match that a new event date, then everyone that has a reservation receives an email with their new time. So then we can't necessarily go and fix in the console because that mm. person's already received an email that's implied that the date and their time has changed. Now, we could change that, of course. So then maybe we do have time to intervene, but the users would find out before we had time to fix it. And then to your other point for the historical data, I also have that in the back of my mind is where I could convince myself that perhaps we don't need to address that historical data, but we do need to make it known as to the differences. That's one of those other tricky areas. It's like, how do you then make it known that previous to this date, the data represents this particular inconvertible hour and minute selected by the user versus now it represents the exact time that they chose, but represented in UTC. 
But I do like that approach because at least that would start correcting all the incoming data in the future. And then if we wanted to update historical data, perhaps that could be done separately because I do worry that there are some other bugs that are out there. I already went ahead and looked through the code base and most of the places are using that always convert to UTC format to ensure that we are always treating it with the same time zone so it's not being converted. But I did see a couple places that it's not, and I haven't looked into those yet. So I have a feeling that looking into this will also fix some other bugs that perhaps we just haven't caught yet. You also mentioned the idea of like a circuit breaker is like a way we could turn this off, turn it back on. So there is the bespoke adder rider, which is kind of why we're in this position in the first place. There is the idea that then we could override the default adder reader to always return UTC as well to at least make it clear to people how it should be done or at least how it should be done in this context, and then update it from there. I haven't pursued that just yet. Right now, it's really just working through getting this fix in and then coming back to think about the larger fix. But that is on my mind. There's also one more saga to this story. Ooh, do tell. So the other part's testing. So we made it this far. We understand the representation of the data and the fix that needs to be applied. And then testing was a bit more persnickety than I had expected because I wanted to set the time zone to EST for this particular test. And then when we move the date for the event, make sure that then any associated reservations are updated to the new date, but their reservation time stays the same. So while testing this, what I started out with was using the time use zone. So that way I can pass it a string like Eastern time, and then it will use that correct zone for running the test. The oddity that I ran into is while using time.useZone, it was setting the time zone correctly for the test. But then when it was executing the job, the job was running in the application default configure time zone. So my test was running in EST, but the job itself was running in UTC, which was leading to some wonkiness which was a bit surprising to me because that test helper seems ideal for this situation. But I suspect it's because the job is running in a different thread. So under the hood, as the job is looking for the time zone, time.zone is calling thread.current and then looking for the set time zone. So within the test itself, it was set to EST. But then within the job, it was set to nil. So then it's falling back to that UTC time zone. So what I did, I don't necessarily love. I'm actually going to send it to you so it's a little easier to talk this through. <laughs> we can add to the show notes. Well, I'll talk through it. So instead of being able to use the use zone, which is essentially just setting time.zone to a custom time zone and then running your example and then using an ensure block to then reset the time zone to the old time zone, I did something very similar, but I'm having to use RSpec stubbing. So I'm doing allow time to receive zone and then returning the custom time zone that I want. And then that's working correctly where I'm getting the correct time zone in the test and in the job, which was surprising to me. So I'm curious, have you ever run into something like this before? As I jokingly said at the beginning, uh, no, I've never had any issues with time zones or testing or anything. It's been super <laughs> easy every time. Uh, this particular thing that you're talking about, specifically where you have the, the out of syncness between your job execution and your test context, that is surprising to me. And it's even more surprising that the solution that you ended on fixes things, but using time.useZone doesn't because I, I don't know why those would have different behavior. But I mean, if this works and if it allows you to test and, you know, you can run your test, see it fail, change your code in the way that you expect and see it pass in the way that you expect, then that's kind of telling you the story. And I'm definitely intrigued as to what's going on under the hood because those two outcomes don't make sense to me, but I don't know enough as to how Sidekick is running here or what's going on. It, it is Sidekick that you're using, right? It is. Yep. Miss Sidekick. Yeah. No, I, I, yeah. I've run into plenty of weird stuff similar to this, maybe not exactly this one, but I don't have any answers, unfortunately. 
Just do away with time zones. Actually, I have an answer. It's the obvious one that we come up with every time we talk about this stuff. We're all using UTC. Yeah, I'm also intrigued. And I plan on looking into it a bit further because I am wondering if it's custom to this application. As you mentioned, that something is happening within this code base because I also would not have expected that issue where I'm getting the time zone in the test, but the default time zone in the job. I also started looking into threads. So I was going so far as to checking how many threads are running. What is the ID of that thread? Because I wanted to prove to myself, is the job running in a separate thread? Like, is that really why this is happening? Or should I be looking elsewhere? So this whole day just took an interesting turn. And I feel like it's not done yet. I haven't really resolved why I'm having to use this stubbing behavior to make sure I'm getting back the correct zone in the test and in the job itself. And then resetting the time.zone, which that part kind of makes sense. But then again, that's the whole point of RSpec stubbing is then it should clean up anything that's been stubbed. So all of this has been a journey. I shall I shall keep you updated as I learn more. I appreciate that. I also appreciate sort of the context of what you're describing because I think many developers would run into this issue, try a bunch of different things, find one that works and then be like, cool, well, that works and then continue on. But I like that you're digging deeper and you're, you've got this like, there's a voice in the back of my head that says this shouldn't work this way. I, I don't understand why this works. And I find that to be an interesting litmus test of like, yeah, it works, but I don't think it should. And what do you do in the face of that feeling as a developer, I think is an interesting way to sort of think about the work that we're doing, because ideally, we can have a reasonable map of the landscape in our head and understand things, even, you know, small pieces at a time, maybe not the entirety of an application. But I like that you're following that voice and being like, yeah, but why, though? I know it's, it passes now, but why? That's such a warning sign for me when something works, but I don't think it should, because I'm like, somebody's wrong here, and it's probably not the computer. (laughs) So that pushes me to understand. And then going back to your comment earlier around something that was grinding your gears this week, that's the other reason I was pursuing this is because it was really grinding my gears that testing time zones was so difficult. Like this should have been easy. At least that's the expectation I went in with, and that is not the result I'm walking away with. So I appreciate you going on this journey with me, but I think it's time that we wrap up. Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. The show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a rating or review in iTunes as it helps other people find the show. If you have feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. And I'm at S. Vicari. Or you can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.